photograph maybe for my birthday next year you get me um those two hours of my life back (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe for my birthday next year you could i don't know pull your finger out and try and help out on the podcast every now and again you selfish well I didn't even say anything. <laughs> Dave, guilty by association. You did not say anything though, did you? You just exactly. I did not there and chuckled. The, oh, yeah. Richard, the Richard Hammonds of the group. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Films on Trial. I'm Gav. Joel. And I'm Dave. And our Kevin Costner season is officially over. And just like Kevin Costner in 2012, we're celebrating a long-awaited return. And that's the return of a Films on Trial favourite, the beloved Halloween Horror Month. And of course... The return of those horrendous sound effects, and if uh, I, I can tell by all of the immense eye rolling right now that you're not appreciating that. <laughs> that one wasn't even scary. What was that? Have you, have you at least got like a, some new ones for this year, or no? Or are you just no. recycling? The same I feel like garbage? after 12 months, a lot of the people might have forgotten what those sound effects were, <laughs> and they need refreshing. <laughs> some people might have said that our Kevin Costner month was horrific enough, but those people are scoundrels. Don't listen to them, all right. <laughs> What we're doing here throughout October is each one of the films on Trial Gang will be putting a horror film of their choice on trial that they found to be personally unsettling. And first up is Alex, who has stuck a thumb in the eye of the establishment and picked a non-horror film, um, The Night of the Hunter. So uh, Alex, uh, is it a horror film? But Why have you picked this film? Controversial to say it's not a horror film. It's not your standard horror film, but I think it's pretty horrific. It's pretty, uh, pretty scary stuff. I watched it when I was quite young and was terrified by it. I'm watching it again. You know, it's uh, it's still pretty, it's still even scarier as an adult in ways that I didn't understand as a child. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an absolute classic. Uh, and I just thought, yeah, let's put it on. Very, I suppose what you'd say is it's more very disturbing than possibly a classic horror. But um, I'm going to argue the case that it is a horror. Mm-hmm. Very disturbing and not that much of a horror. A bit like Ozzy, you'd say, wouldn't you? So, um, So, nice point, Alex. So, is The Night of the Hunter the clenched fist of hate or the outstretched fingers of love? (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, will this film be placed on our esteemed hit list or our steaming shit list? Now, before we go on, our last film on trial was The Bodyguard. Now, Dave judged that trial and deemed that it should be placed on the shit list. Yeah, he did, yeah. Shit list. He's since gone away and watched the film. So did he make the right call or not, Dave? Um, Yes. Yes, I did. I actually think you guys did a really good job of of conveying to me exactly what the film was about because I stand by what I said at the end of my judgment. I said, I think I'm going to enjoy it, but I don't think it's a good film. And true enough, that was essentially the case. I liked the film. I enjoyed the film. Is it well made? No, not, not really. The performances are okay. There's nothing special there. There's very little chemistry between the two romantic leads, which is kind of a crucial point of the plot. You know, I can understand why it was such a big hit. You know, the soundtrack's fantastic, but yeah, ultimately you, you break it down into many pieces and, you know, it doesn't quite equal the sum of all of its parts. It was a, a good attempt, but it's not great. Thank you very much, Dave. Well summed up. Also, technically, we did have another trial last week. Oh, uh, yeah. Somebody, yeah. not naming any names, may have accidentally deleted the recording. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Two, two hours Who was it, life. Gav? 
<laughs> I, I can't. I can't remember. Let's not. Let's let, let, let's not play the blame game here. Let's not point oh, fingers. Oh. All right, we all well, make mistakes. Okay. What I'm saying is, it's probably out of I don't know how many episodes we're on now, like 150 or something like that. Like probably the best episode we've ever done. <laughs> you deleted it. Well, uh, to make up for it, what I've decided to do here is I've asked Ozzy to give us a very brief summary of what happened during this trial. <laughs> So the uh, the trial started with uh, mismatched pair Joel and Alex. They had to uh, they defended rush hour. I mean they were like chalk and cheese in their work. And then when you know when Dave and I we we kidnapped the ambassador's daughter as part of their prosecution. And then Joel and Alex had to join forces, save the day, and then uh, to try and get rush hour onto the hit list. But I mean nothing could prepare us for when the actual Jackie Chan made an appearance and delighted us all with his uncanny impression of Tom Wilkinson. And the whole trial was an absolute riot, full-on uproar, everyone laughed so hard. I mean, Dave passed out from exhaustion at one point, I thought we were going to have to try and call an ambulance. Madness when BAFTA dialed in towards the end of the episode and uh, gave us a Best British Podcast Award. Richard Curtis himself presented us with it and said he was so impressed with the show. Um, he'd listened back through the Love Actually and he was so convinced by the prosecution he's uh, decided to retire from filmmaking altogether. So, yeah, well, that was that. Rush Hour ended up on the hit list. Everybody celebrated as the credits rolled. Uh, thank you very much for that, Ozzy. And <laughs> uh, now on to the trial itself. All of the roles have been picked out of the hat at random. So acting in defense and trying to get this film placed on the hit list will be Alex and Dave. Now, I've gone for classic horror villains here. So brace yourself. Alex is just like Freddy Krueger. He probably heavily features in some children's nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, I wonder if there has been a child who's had a nightmare about him. Well, they've never said, they've never mentioned it, but then they wouldn't, would they? Because <laughs> I, I, I've had a, f a few nightmares about teachers in the past. I, 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 I know your teachers still probably wake up screaming, <laughs> thinking about you, to be honest, Gav. I was there right sat next to you. Mr. Devitt. Probably still hasn't recovered, to be honest. He gave that guy an aneurysm every physics lesson. <laughs> Never seen anyone literally scream to the point where they were speechless. If you listen to Miss Devitt, I'm very sorry. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> As you well know, Mr. Devitt, he's not at all. <laughs> no. Uh, now, Dave is a bit like Hannibal Lecter. He pretends to be very cultured and refined, but we've all seen him eat some pretty horrible shit. <laughs> That's quite true as well. <laughs> and I think it's prosecution and trying to get this film placed on the shit list will be me. And I'm just like the candy man. I spend a lot of my time looking in the mirror and my insides are rotten. <laughs> <laughs> now just like real cause advocates the defense and prosecution will be making the best case for their roles these may or may not be their real opinions though so do stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear their genuine thoughts and this week joel will be playing the judge and he has to decide which list the film should be placed on hit or shit based solely on the arguments put to him and not using his own opinions and joel is just like jason Voorhees, 
the strong and silent type. <laughs> sorry, Joel. I felt a bit let out. I was going to say you also, there was going to be something else coming. To be honest, yeah. but I, I was going to say that you had a love of sports that was just surface level. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, so the, the, the insult you would throw at Jason Voorhees. He's going to be a hockey fan. Uh, now, before we get started, I think we should give the audience a bit of a better understanding as to what this film is all about. So let us spin the Wheel of Impressions. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. Has that changed? That was like a, bit, a bird. Yeah. Or like R2-D2. Well, at the beginning, he kind of goes like, oh, 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 and then there's just a noise. So you just got to guess what animal it is. <laughs> anyway, as you can all see here, it's landed on Alex. So... How would we like Alex to read out the synopsis? What we do here is we read off the synopsis of the film in the style of one of the cast or characters from the film. I think it can only be... It's got to be Mitchum, hasn't it? Mitchum, yeah. It's got to right. be Robert Mitchum. I mean, it's just a southern, sort of a southern drawl sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Am I yeah. going for I don't know if I can do a Robert Mitchum. A religious fanatic marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real daddy hid the $10,000 he's stolen in a robbery. Yeah, not pretty, pretty much Mitchum. Pretty much Mitchum. Never done a Mitchum before. It's my best shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that was pretty decent, to be honest. I liked it. Thank yeah. you. You can add that to your one-man repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Can I add Can I add Max von Sydow? Will you let He's me already in it. You got, you got he is in it. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, man. Who else That's was nicest it? thing you said to me. Well, Werner Herzog, I'm still well, working it. on. But, Werner Herzog. Yeah, he's, he's not ready. He's not ready. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, so yeah, without further hesitation, Joel, would you like to please kick off proceedings? All right, well, I think I've heard everything I need to hear, so. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, obviously this is your pick, so I'll let you go first. So just looking for kind of a brief synopsis, almost like what you might find on the back of a DVD case. <laughs> um, and I, I take it this is a pretty old film, so... Just along with the synopsis, how do you think that, you know, the plot and the kind of, uh, you know, horror in this film holds up to, to today's standards as well? Sure. Okay. It's not a complicated plot. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, you've got a preacher or sort of a man who, in, you know, is an imposter or sees himself as a preacher, played by Robert Mitchum. So he's what his name's uh, Harry Powell. He is sort of you sort of realize early on quite a bit of a quite a bit of a maniac quite insane you sort of see him at, at the point when he's uh watching women dancing and he looks like he's like clenching his fist he's uh, he's becoming so you know that he's a he's a bad guy he's he ends up in jail because he's stolen a car but he ends up in jail with a thief who's robbed a bank killed two people but has hidden the money now you see in a scene where the only people who know where he's hidden the, the money are his children. He's got two children, uh, one sort of his boy around about 10 and a younger girl uh, about five or six years old. No one knows that the children know, but they all know that he's stolen $10,000 and it must be hidden somewhere. So the preacher hears about this. The thief who's killed people is uh, put on death row. And when the preacher gets out of jail, is let out, he travels to the town and insinuates himself and ends up marrying the widow of the thief who, who was killed on death row because uh, in, in an attempt to try and find the money, you know, over a lot, over a few scenes, you sort of start to realize he starts to figure out that the kids know where the money is and he starts to target them and to harass them. Um, he then 
kills the mother because the mother gets onto him and starts realizing what he's what he's doing and he's at this point he's turned the whole town into sort of religious fervor and then the sort of second act in the film is the preacher uh, robert mitchum chasing these children as they try to escape him they get on a boat escape him and he and he, and he travels after them over weeks uh, this chase happens for a you know for, for over the over the sort of course of the, the middle part of the film until a kind woman saves them and sort of takes them in into like a sort of an orphanage and looks after them and in the end there's a showdown where the preacher sort of finds them and he sort of you know that's the culmination of the of the film it is then this film was made in 1955 and so you know it's strange to think really that a film in 1955 could be horrific but this film really is and it's not because of particular jump scares and it's not because i would say particularly because you know like people look scary it's just the themes that are running throughout it you know you've got a it's you wouldn't have this film now and it's because in the 50s they would do certain things in stories that i don't think we'd quite have the guts to do now so even though we'd have like you know horrific sadism in films i don't think you'd have a film of two children being just relentlessly pursued by a man who's just out to kill them i mean he's chasing them with a knife and he's you know, there's these beautiful, amazing shots when he's reaching out, his hands are reaching up a dark staircase to try and try and grab him. It's not like your classic horror. It's not, you know, and I, I don't think the film was trying to be because it's 1955, but it is deeply unsettling. You know, there's, there's a big theme running through it of sort of good and evil. You've got the preacher who's meant to be, obviously, as a preacher, he's meant to be a good character, isn't he? And he's got this love and hate uh, on his knuckles. But the way that it's explored is very, it's very mature for a film in the 1950s. Sex is a big part of this film. And it's it's kind of surprising when you're watching it to see that, that sex is such a big part of it. You know, he's a preacher who hates women. This is a, you know, this is a man who absolutely hates women. And you see him right at the beginning. He's got a knife and he wants to, wants to hurt them. He then, when he marries the, the widow, he, he, he puts forward abstinence and says that she's dirty because she wants to have anything to do with him in the bedroom. He says, that's not what women's body is for. She's had children. There's no need for that anymore. And, you know, there's also, there's other characters where they discuss in the women are saying women shouldn't want that from it. People, women shouldn't want sex. And then you have even a character later on, a girl who's at the orphanage called Ruby, who goes out and tries to, to, to go with men. And the film like discusses good and evil through through sex and through how you know how women enjoy it and how they shouldn't enjoy it and, and moral and abstinence. It's it's a fascinating film. It's not so it's not your classic horror. I'm sure when we watch other horror films in this, we'll be watching more sort of your, your jump scares and ghosts and stuff like this. But the themes, the fact that the film goes to places where you've got kids being chased, you've got you know when their mum is stabbed. It's very shocking for a film at any time, but especially from the 1950s. And I think just from it, the way it's directed and it's inspired, you know, from Knuckles on the love and hate, it's inspired many, many characters. And uh, it's an absolute classic. So, so not your standard horror, but its own thing and horrific enough. Okay, thanks for that, Alex. Gav, you've seen plenty of horror. Some might say too much <laughs> how did you fare with this film the plot sounds fairly unique to me it doesn't sound like anything that i've, that I've heard before and for the 1950s it sounds like it's quite a um you know revolutionary film do, do you agree with those points well alex said that you wouldn't get a film these days where the duration of it is basically a man trying to kill a kid what about home alone alex <laughs> <laughs> i, I stand like corrected that? i withdraw <laughs> i withdraw my argument case closed <laughs> but, 
But listen, this is is a horror film. I'm sorry, it's it's not scary. It's not even really unsettling. Mitchum's performance is quite unnerving at times. I, th- I think I would say the first forty minutes, maybe fifty minutes. He is quite menacing, but then it's counteracted by this Mr. Bean-like performance. His character does a complete 180, and I'll go into a bit more detail about that later on. But... Mr. Bean-like performance. <laughs> yeah, that, that scene where the kids escape him, <laughs> where he gets his hand trapped in the door. He's does like, he, like oh. run over a rake and it like hits him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, the boundaries aren't being pushed as much as Alex thinks either. I will grant that I think... Um, Willa's character, uh, well, um, sorry, Shelley Winters was it, yeah. when she's murdered, that was surprising. I was genuinely taken aback by that. However, I mean, nothing else is really surprising in the film. If maybe one of the kids was murdered, I would have been like, wow, that is very surprising. But I, I don't think that's the case. I, you're, a, I, you're a sick man, Hanson. You're a sick, <laughs> <laughs> you're a sick man. <laughs> yeah. So the, the film was initially a major box office disappointment. It went massively over budget, massively over schedule, and received critical and audience backlash. And it resulted in Charles Lawton, Lawton sorry, the director, never directing a film again. I know Dave's probably going to come back on that mm. and say, well, technically, he moved into the theatre, but he didn't produce a, a major Hollywood film again because That's he had exactly such a bad like time. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I've had speech therapy. I don't talk like that anymore. <laughs> now, somewhere along the line, there has been a massive 180, and it is now considered a masterpiece, and I genuinely don't understand why. See, I, like Alex, watched this when I was very young, and I remember it being fantastic. I remember it a bit incorrectly, though, because I, I thought I... I it ended with Robert Mitchum wading through the water, swinging this knife, trying to attack the kids, and then he's arrested. That that doesn't happen. That happens just before the kids escape on the boat, as Alex mentioned before. At that point in the film, it all goes downhill for me. That's where the film stops being interested. With the exception of the majority of Mitchum's performance, so up until that 40, 50-minute mark, whenever that happens, it's quite an average film. The rest of the performances range from subpar to, frankly, pretty shit the direction is bang average the story is interesting up until that point that i mentioned granted not captivating or even unique but it is interesting however it falls completely apart halfway through and you end up losing interest in the plot and the outcomes of any of the characters i said before it's not horror film it's not very tense and towards the end I, I don't even know what it is the last 20 minutes or so it's almost like i was watching it's a wonderful life it's completely pointless. Night of the Hunter, I'd rather have a night in and watch Milf Hunters instead. <laughs> and yet you're not going to edit that. <laughs> you, you could have said Storage Hunters. You didn't. You, did, you that chose was a, not to. That was a choice. <laughs> uh, Gav sold me, to be honest with you there. I think we'd all ha- rather have a night in with Storage Hunters. So, <laughs> Dave, I just want to quickly get your view. Alex says... You know, it's, it's not conventional horror, but it is quite disturbing mm-hmm. seeing certain events unfold. Gav obviously completely disagrees. Uh, what's your take on it? First of all, I'd just like to come back on a couple of absolute 
uh, lies that Gav just told me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> Gav says it went way over budget. It didn't. It stayed within its budget. Gav says the shooting ran way over. It didn't. It was a 36-day shoot. It was all done perfectly in time. Don't he try is and correct. I'll fact-check, Dave. I'm, I'm fact-checking. I'm fact-checking. He is correct in that this is the one and only film that Charles Lawton never directed. Now, he was excited to get this project. And he brought so many elements to this. You know, he loved silent cinema, which wasn't that long ago when you think this was made. Uh, so he was excited to bring these silent cinema aspects to it, the visual flair that he brought to it. And the, the sad story is that um, a lot of cinemas didn't want to stock this because they weren't, they were a bit jaded about a, basically a religious figure being the villain. They were scared of the fact that a preacher would be the the main antagonist. This this unnerved them somewhat. Also, the film was completely screwed over by the distributor, United Artists. United Artists were meant to put this out. They were meant to put money into marketing. It was very lackluster. They did not publicize this film at all. They put it on a double bill alongside uh, Robber's Roost, which is one of those B-movie westerns we've never heard of since. Uh, the producer of the film actually fell out with United Artists after this and parted company with them because he felt they'd shown such disrespect to the film. Charles Lawton had put his heart and soul into this, done a fantastic job of directing, far beyond the bang average that no, Gav says. And um, he was heartbroken. <laughs> he was just heartbroken by the film. Yeah, it was a box office failure because of what the distributor did. Um, and he didn't and want to direct it. Because it was a bit shit, was it? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Uh, yeah, Charles Lawton was just heartbroken. By it, uh, so he didn't direct again. And just to say about the uh, the horror aspect, I see this as more of a thriller, but it is a scary thriller. Uh, and it's it certainly the, the performance of Robert Mitchum goes far beyond unnerving. He is terrifying. The presence of this man, and not just Robert Mitchum's performance, but the way Charles Lawton shoots him and directs him, uh, the use of the silhouette and the use of the visual flair that comes alongside the character. This character is more than just a little bit unsettling. He is scary. And bear in mind, this film is shown from a kid's perspective. That is where the fear element comes into play. The fact that, you know, if it, it's why It Chapter One was scarier than It Chapter Two. Put yourself in a child's perspective, and these things are much more scary. You know, uh, a madman with a knife, is, is, it may as well be a vampire or a zombie to a, to a child. You know, this is frightening stuff. And there is a jump scare in it. You know, one of the earliest jump scares I think we've seen in cinema. Um, it, um, the first jump scare I think in modern cinema was 1942's Cat People with the Luton bus. So this jump scare occurs towards the end of the film when Robert Mitchum comes back to attack the kids when they're at Rachel's place. That's the old lady that's taking them in. Uh, and there's a bit where he sits outside on the lawn and he's singing, you know, kind of trying to rattle them inside so they're singing loud enough they can hear him. Rachel's out on the porch with a shotgun, making sure he doesn't move, that he doesn't come inside. As soon as he's on her property, I guess she can shoot him. Uh, she gets distracted momentarily by Ruby, one of the girls coming down, and at that point he vanishes. He's gone. She blows out a candle. Once the light's gone, you can see outside again, he's gone. She rallies the kids quickly, all this panic and what have you. He's in the house somewhere. They don't know where they go in the kitchen. He's talking to her from the kitchen. She knows he's in there, but she doesn't know where. And then all of a sudden, the cat, he must he stands on the couch. And the cat screams. He stands bolt upright, and he's about this close to the screen. He's a few feet in front of her, and he's right up in the viewer's face. It is one of the earliest jump scares. You know, it's it's a classic and it really does rattle you. Um, so, yeah, I'd say this is scary. There are there is that jump scare. There are real chilling moments, particularly to Mitchum's performance more so than anything else. He was terrifying in this, you know, for a man who once said I have he did a lot of Westerns just to uh, clarify. He said, I have two acting styles with horse and without. And he did himself a discredit. He was a fantastic actor with fantastic range that really uh, went above and beyond on this role. Okay, Gav, I can see you've got 
your hand up nice and politely there. Thank you very much. Um, I think these two are massively overselling this. There's no way that either of them found it genuinely scaring or unsettling. Granted, Mitchum's performance is pretty decent for most of the film, but I wouldn't say that either of them were scared at any point. Like, <laughs> Speak for yourself, Gav. You can't tell me what I felt. <laughs> I, I know. I can. I can see in your eyes, Alex. I can see. I know when you're lying. Like with with regards to to the story. Like as I said before, the story starts off well. The script starts off well. But once Harry has infiltrated the family and murdered Willie, the film shifts to a much slower pace, and it loses confidence in itself, and it begins to unravel. Mitchum goes from a collected and menacing presence. To, as I mentioned before, a bumbling con artist, a bit like our mates Harry and Mark from Home Alone. (laughs) After Harry murders Willa, there is nothing in the way of him and the kids. He threatens to beat and even kill John if he doesn't tell him where the money is. And that's when Willa was alive. So now Willa is dead. You really fear for the kids. So what does he go and do? He makes himself a big, massive dinner and says to the kids that they won't get any unless they tell them where the cash is. You know, it's it's a, it just feels a bit anticlimactic. It's not as menacing as I thought it would and be. And pulls the knife out on them. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, even the way he pulls, pulls the knife, the knife out, out you know, even the way he pulls the knife out, it's not like it's not it's not menacing. He just kind of goes, "Hey, do you know what this is?" It's like yes. it's, it's a knife. Yeah, uh, like the, the, there is a, a a slightly menacing bit later on when he puts uh, the kid's head against the apples and he gets the knife. That is that is more menacing. If that would have happened before, I would have been like, "Oh yeah." I feel some genuine fear here, or there, there is some, there's something to fear. But now the kids tell him that the money's in the cellar. He goes down to the cellar, and then he gets outsmarted by the kids. And he, they manage to evade him. They trap his fingers in the door. He howls. He like is hopping up and down, sucking his fingers. It's, it's just a bit comedic. Then there's this long section where the kids float downstream on a rowboat whilst Harry pursues them on horseback. They go from place to place before they're eventually taken in by Rachel, as Dave said before, who looks after a number of the orphans. Then Harry goes around the town asking questions about the kids and finds out where they're located after he goes on some weird date with one of the older orphans. And I was thinking, right, okay, what's he going to do next? Is he going to try and abduct the kids by night? Is he going to try and storm the house? No, he literally just pitches up a few days later. So it's not even immediate, a few days after that, after that, and he just asks for the kids and when Joe says that, sorry, John says that he isn't his real father, Rachel chases Harry off. He menacingly says, oh, yeah, I'll be back later. Once again, I was excited to see what dastardly plan he would come up with. And it, it, he's literally just sitting in the front garden singing. <laughs> and then Dave's big sort of surprise thing, you know, he just gets bored, presumably. <laughs> and then he moves into the house. He gets shot by Rachel. It looks like he's shot in the arse. He makes this ludicrous hee-hawing sound like a donkey and runs into the barn. And then the police pitch up and arrest him. John, who is fed up of hiding the money any longer, reveals it to the police and the film ends, or at least what? it should end. It should end, but it goes on for <laughs> He's fed fucking... up of hiding the money. What? The... Fed up of hiding the money. What? <laughs> Wait, he, he, he says after the money back. No, he's not bored this. of keeping the money, is he? It's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm generalizing. But anyway, the film goes on for another 20 minutes. And you're just really thinking, why, why is this film continuing? It isn't. It isn't. It like goes into the courtroom scene. Then Rachel and the kids are trying to have dinner at the restaurant before they're confronted by an angry mob of protesters who want to confront Five Harry. 
Yeah, and then there's this bizarre, really long scene where Rachel gives the kids Christmas presents and delivers several lines to the audience about how great kids are. It should have ended ages before that. It just feels like it's been dragged on and it ends up being some other film. It isn't It isn't menacing. It isn't scary. It isn't thrilling anymore. Like a okay, damn so, Alex, I can see you getting like visibly distressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wow. just, just a quick one before you come back on Gav's points. How long yeah. is, the, is the film? It's a very short film. I don't know exactly, but I mean, it's about, about an hour and a half. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's about an hour and a half. So, and it's, it's Charles Lawton was a theatre director. And so this is very much a, a three act thing. It, it knows exactly what it's doing. You've got the first act, which is setting up the story and the preacher and the money. You've got the second act where he's sort of trying to get the, the cash when he's there. And then the third act is the chase and the kids running away and stuff like that. It's a, it's a very tightly wound film. So at no point do you really feel like anything's, uh, you know, going on too long. And you've got the horror, which is the horror of being a helpless child. You know, this Harry doesn't, you know, the preacher doesn't, at the end, is very powerful all the way through. At the beginning of the film, he insinuates and he uses his charm as well as his knife to get what he needs. And he sort of, he cons people. So he's still, he's doing what he's done the whole way through. The beauty of this film is right towards the end when you get meet the Rachel Cooper character, who's the only good character in it, including the, you know, all the way through it, the kids are the only good characters in it. Even their uncles are drunk and leaves them to their fate. Their dad is a thief who is killed on death row. Their mum is a simpleton and, 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 and a bit of an idiot and is, you know, is, is easily swayed and ends up dying. The preacher, obviously, by Robert Mitchum, is one of the most hor- hor- horrendous characters ever. There's a great character called Icy Spoon, who, best name ever, who just sort of sums up like America's morality and stupidity. And this is what the children are surrounded by. There's no way of saving them. They're completely helpless for the first two acts of the film. And it's only when they get to this bit at the end, when they meet Rachel, that they can finally, you know, they're running away from them. They're trying to keep this $10,000 that's now in the girl's stuffed doll. And they're running away. And it's when they meet this woman who's just amazing i mean you know how many times have been talking on this podcast about having a strong female role well this is 1955 and this is a woman at the end who's a who's who's quite elderly you know and she looks after kids she's she's a vulnerable woman and she is the only one that stands up for these kids and saves them at the end she's the strong character and moral character in this film and that's beyond that and, and that's really very very that's way beyond its time. So she brings the hope at the end and she brings these fantastic, I mean, Gav's talking about this character, Ruby, who goes on a date with the preacher. One of my favorite lines in it is Ruby goes and she's sort of, basically in those times, she would have been as some sort of like, you know, a, a harlot, you know, a woman who goes in, she tries to find boys and she ends up being taken by this preacher. And the earlier, the Icy Spoon character or the, the preacher would, castigate her for it you know she's a harlot she's a slut she's a woman who doesn't you know she she just wants an easy time of it she just wants men and you know morality of america at the time would have been right you know way behind her on this but this beautiful rachel cooper character who saves the day you know ruby comes back and confesses it to her and she says oh ruby you're just looking for love you know and honestly it got me a little bit you're just looking for love and that's you know and that's fine don't be ashamed of yourself i understand why you're doing you've done the wrong thing and at the very end, a bit where I, I'm not afraid to say I cried at the end, is when they, and I think this is when Gav said this, this is what got me, sorry, I'm, I'm calming down now. But when, <laughs> when the boy gives the money at the end, it's because it triggers his memory of what happened to his dad. 
It's shot in a very way. I'm sure we're going to direction. The direction's just stunning. But it's shot in the same way at the beginning of the film when the police come to get the dad. It's it's done in the same way, so it recalls that. And the would police you, get uh, just, Robert. Just to kind of cut you off there, would you say, you know, you you said he got triggered there. Would you say that you also got triggered by Gav? <laughs> I would say, I, I, I mean, as we all know, we, we all find Gav constantly triggering <laughs> it's hard not to be triggered by gav but yeah just to just to finish off my point the, the boy at the end sees this happening to robert mitchum and he sort of realizes what he's been doing which is he just wanted the money and he runs out and he's like no don't you know don't hurt him don't hurt him and he sort of becomes a more moral character than the even the preacher and he wants to give him the money just take the money don't hurt him just go away just you know just be okay with the money and that, honestly it really really got me so yeah, I, I I think it's not your normal horror, and I can see why possibly it didn't do well at the box office because it's not. It's an original film. This so it's hard to put into any box because it's so original. It is very much its own thing. The Night of a Hunter is the Night of a Hunter, and it's not been replicated. And I think that's why it's easy to say, "Oh, it's not this, it's not that," because it's it's very much its own thing, and it's it's beautiful, horror, disturbing, beautiful, and very hopeful. Thanks for that, Alex. Very passionate. <laughs> it's a bit too passionate, if you ask me. I'm very passionate. <laughs> Dave, um, I'm going to come to you now. Mm-hmm. We'll move on to the direction and the script as kind of like a, a dual point, if you like. How do you think this film is directed? Obviously, they don't have the technology that they had these days in 1955. So... How do they kind of cut? No explosions. No. (laughs) How's Joel going to be able to watch this? Lamentably not. How how do they kind of compensate for that? And, um, you know, in terms of the script, is there any kind of good lines of dialogue that maybe Mm -hmm. make the film a little bit more chilling and, you know, that type of thing? No problem. Right. Well, the direction. First of all, it's interesting what you say about, you know, they didn't have much in the way of equipment back then. You know, they were still working it out as they went. And I did notice they did uh, this this amazing. It was done by the second unit, this one. But the uh, the opening panning shot, you know, where they discover uh, Harry Powell's first victim in the basement. You know, she's kind of on the stairs and kids discover her while they're playing a game. And they've got this amazing panning shot that's coming in. And I'm I'm watching it thinking they didn't have drones. Yeah. They didn't. They wouldn't have been able to afford a plane or a helicopter. How did they do that? How did they get that shot? And I still don't know how Second Unit did that. It is amazing the number of techniques that they incorporated into making this film. You know, uh, Charles Lawton, like I said, he was inspired by silent cinema, which is telling a story when you can't have dialogue, when you can't have anyone speaking to each other. How do you convey what's going on on the screen and make people understand? And his imagery in this is sensational the scene where in particular the scene that stands out for me is where harry powell kills the children's mother willa uh, and she's kind of lying in bed in the in their bedroom and she's coming to the realization of what his motive was she realizes he's lied she doesn't have the strength to fight him and he's kind of standing in the window he's the, the lighting in this scene is incredible and even the design of their bedroom is kind of the, uh, it's almost like a chapel and yet a tomb at the same time, which is quite apt, given the scene that is unfolding in front of you and how it ends with Harry murdering her. The cinematics in this are are stunning, absolutely amazing. I mean, this wasn't a big budget. You know, it all had to be done on sound stages over in Hollywood, but Charles Lawton 
made the best of what he had available and created such a rich tapestry here. You know, you felt these kids were traveling down this river, going from town to town, trying to evade Harry Powell. You know, when you think there weren't many exterior shots, and yet you genuinely feel when you're watching this during those chase sequences that this is outside. You know, so good with with the set design, so good with Charles Lawton's direction and the way that he put these uh, shots together. It's absolutely fantastic. And when it comes to the uh, getting performances out of his actors, I mean, he he helped Mitchum along with this one in a big way. Like I said, Mitchum wasn't confident in himself. I mentioned the the horse quote before, but he got great performances out of these actors. Charles Lawton himself was a an Oscar winning actor. He was uh, won an Olivia Award for his time on stage. You know, he knew how to help actors along and how to help them achieve their best. And he did that tenfold on this one. I remember there's a story about Robert Mitchum's audition and Charles Lawton was trying to explain to him the character. And he said, look, essentially, he's a diabolical shit. And Mitchum put his hand up and went, present. So it was like, it was this great kind of understanding between them. You know, he really knew how to work with these actors. So as far as direction goes, I think it's absolute criminal, to be honest with you, that Charles Lawton never directed another film just because the distribution company screwed this one over so badly and absolutely broke his heart. He didn't have the, the fight in him to make another one. He thought, oh, no, maybe, maybe it was terrible. Maybe it wasn't for me. But the fact that, you know, long after Charles Lawton has gone, the film has been preserved in the National Archives of the United States Cinema. I think goes to show you how it is revered these days and how many people have come around to the way of thinking that, you know what, this was just bad marketing. This film is an absolute classic. So direction, big thumbs up from me. And the script, I think, you know, it's it's sold by its, by its actors. It was adapted from a novel. It was adapted from a, a book that was released two years previous uh, by Davis Grubb. And he based the book on the actual crimes of a, a serial killer called Harry Powers. You didn't didn't stretch the name too far from the truth <laughs> on that one, uh, who was known as the the Lonely Hearts Killer. So there's a lot of truth to what goes on here. So it's quite an accurate script in a lot of ways. The best scenes and the best dialogue come from Mitchum. You know, his his sermon about love grappling with hate as he explains these tattoos on his knuckles. It's just one of the best soliloquies in in modern history. And Gav's giggling about something, but go on. Alex, when you, when you mentioned that scene, Alex's face, the noise he made, it's like he's just eating a delicious cake. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. mm. <laughs> I remembered it, and it tastes great when you remember the memory okay. of it's that good. Okay, so, yeah, so, uh, good script, good direction, in conclusion. Okay, Dave has sold that pretty well, Gav, but, you know, at the same time, I've played the thing with Dave, I know how. <laughs> I know I, how we I can too, deceive people. I too am diabolical <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, what, what have you got to say for yourself? The only real crime here is that Charles Lawton got away with making people believe that he's a good director. <laughs> what Charles Lawton was able to do was assemble a good team behind him. So, I'm not going to deny that the cinematography is really good. I did really enjoy that element of the film. I think that some of the frame, the way the film is framed is absolutely beautiful. I really like the lighting as well and the set design. I think that's all great. Direction, though, I did think that it fell down. This is Charles Lawton's directorial debut. Dave said that he was into theatre before. He was like, he directed a lot of theatre productions. That is massively different from a film. And this is, this is where I think the problem lies. 
I don't know if he knows how to film a scene properly. That sounds really condescending. But some of the shots linger a bit too long or uh, the scene is cut a little bit too short. Some of his shot choices are a bit questionable. For example, choosing to focus on a wider group, having a wider lens, as opposed to one character who is talking or reacting or vice versa. So there's, there's sometimes when there's a scene and it's, it's the group of children and it's Rachel and Mitchum's character there, and I would much rather be looking directly at how Harry is reacting to this or how Rachel reacts to what Harry says, as opposed to having the kids in the scene as well, because they're not adding anything to it. And it's, for me, it was just distracting. There are choices to inject humor into scenes where they feel a little bit out of place and almost contradictory to the scene or insert dialogue in scenes where silence would have been more affecting. As I said before, I mentioned about that scene where the kids managed to evade Mitchum's character that just felt a little bit comedic for me. And this other elements, like later on, when I said he gets shot in the arse and he runs off to the barn, that once again... He does not get shot in the arse. Where does he get shot? Where does he get shot? You don't know. He gets gets clipped. He's facing her. So I'll tell you one place he didn't get shot, and that's the arse. (laughs) (laughs) The bullet ricocheted off something, hit him smack bang in the arse, and he runs off. And he's he's, honestly, the noise is, is very comical. And... One thing that I, I don't like here, Dave said that he, he liked this. Alex mentioned before that the kids are away for a number of weeks. I didn't really get a good sense of time or setting. I genuinely don't know how long this boat journey that they took was. Was it days? Was it weeks? How far did they travel? This, You know, I, I, I've got no idea. Why wasn't Mitchum's character able to catch up with them on horseback? Why, in some scenes... Is he very, very near? Like we were talking about that scene where, you know, there's a silhouette of him on horseback. He's essentially in what within about 100 feet of them. And yet he doesn't approach them. Whereas later on in the film, it feels like they're absolutely miles apart. The setting also, I didn't really get. I didn't know how far a distance it was between the original town, between, you know, are we we in a big city here? Why is there no police presence? Why at the end is there this massive kind of feel like there's a whole community here? There's lots of police. There's a massive angry mob. But then again, Rachel and the kids are there and it's almost like they've been able to travel there without any issues at all. So how far away do they live from, from the original setting? There are so many tales as well about this film from Charles Lawton, from the writer James Agee, uh, from the producer Paul Gregory, Robert Mitchum himself and several other cast members. Massively contradictory as to how well this film was shot. A lot of people saying that there was massive problems with the director and the directing. They said that the director absolutely hated the kids and couldn't actually direct them. So Robert Mitchum ended up having to direct the scenes with the children in. Then there's contradictory reports from the producer saying that Robert Mitchum was a drunk and and he sometimes would fail to pitch up for shoots because he'd be too drunk. There was a report that... We've all he, been there, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I was going to say, we've all definitely been in, in this bit. There was, there was a reported uh, a fracas where Mitchum pitched up for recording. He was told that he was late and he was drunk and he wouldn't be filming that day. So in protest, he walked into the producer's room and urinated on the floor. Now, we've all been there. <laughs> That's now, classic, Ozzy. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave said before that there wasn't a delay. There actually was a delay because Robert Mitchum had to go off and film another film. So there was a pause made to the film 
And uh, so the final scene where he's arrested wasn't actually recorded until this second film that Mitchum was working on was finished. So there was a massive delay to getting that bit done. And some of the producers were actually a bit bitter because they were like, well, if you would have pitched up, if you would have given it your all throughout, then we would have been able to get those scenes done and we wouldn't have had to pause this, stretch the budget, stretch the schedule. And then maybe they might not have had too many issues with the production company releasing the film. I don't know. All I'm saying is this sounded like a lot of problems. It sounded like it was too much for a, a new director making his de debut um, who had no experience of filming a film before. He'd previously worked with the theatre, and I think this was just too much for him. With a star of Mitchum's magnitude, star power, it was a big presence, maybe a bit of an ego, that the director really struggled to contain. Hey, thanks, Black it's, it's interesting because it's polar opposites to what Alex is saying, so... One of you is selling me off the river here. <laughs> it, it's hard to, to, to see who it is, but Alex, I can see you're crying into your pot noodle a bit. There, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, um, you know, there's always problems and there's always stories going on. I think a lot of the stuff that Gav's talking about, I saw as well. I think it came from a, uh, from a Robert Mitchum autobiography, which I think was debunked quite a lot. Like, I, I, you know, he, he said he directed the kids. I, I think most people agree. That Charles Lawton did. This was Charles Charles Lawton's directorial debut in cinema, uh, but he was very you know well well renowned uh, actor, and you know he he was absolutely fantastic in this. Like, like I say, like Dave said, it's an absolute crying shame that he never came back to it. He w had a background in theatre, and you can see that comes across. So it's not something against him. It comes across in the films, and, and often, to be honest, in the fifties, it was a revolving door between theatre and cinema. It's not the, it's not the difference that we have now. He was absolutely fantastic. And there's a lot of shots that I think required that theatrical direction because it's not done on location. It's quite a lot of sound stage, a lot of stages. I think that really helped. Just adding on to what Dave said, there's an amazing bit where it's shot underwater when they find the, the woman and in the water. It's absolutely haunting. You want to hear it, see horror, see the death of the mum when she's in the car underwater. In the 1950s, you've never seen anything like it. And you've seen, you know, you, you don't see anything really these days just to go quickly through the actors i know we've talked about robert bitch and i think we can all agree that he was he was astoundingly good in this even if he did turn up pissed to set <laughs> <laughs> he still you know give give up on a drink because fuck it whatever he needs you know i mean he, he knew what he was doing here didn't uh, um, bob hoskins also turn up pissed to, to yeah, set yeah, yeah. I think, yeah for, for different reasons <laughs> and it sounds like it was the same reason <laughs> the, the child actors are incredible especially again you know for the 50s they're really really good like you know the the young girl you know it's hard to get a performance uh, of that caliber but they really do the the boy as well that you know gav was saying that there's some weird shots i honestly don't know what he's talking about there's some shots that are interplaying between Robert Mitchum and the boy, because they are really the protagonist and the antagonist, where Robert Mitchum's sort of figuring out what the boy's, you know, thinking, and he sort of, he, he keeps asking him little questions and trying to tease out this information in the second act. And that interplay is astoundingly good for any time. Uh, I think the rest of the cast, especially, I love that Icy Spoon, and I think the character of Rachel Cooper and, hang on a minute, Shelley Winters, Lillian Gish, who plays Rachel Cooper, and Shelley Winters, absolutely amazing in this. Fantastic performances and very strong, like female performances as well. Again, quite shocking for the time and quite surprising. So, I, I, for me personally, I, and this is this is where I can end it. For this, for this, for me, this film is no perfect. Direction, action. Uh, no, sorry, <laughs> direction. It's not really an action film. Direction, uh, the performances, 
And yeah, okay. I mean, what, what you could say is I picked it for Halloween Horror Month and, you know, is it a classic horror film? Well, it's definitely its own thing. And I found it extremely disturbing. So for, for me, it's just a no perfect film. Okay. Before we go to you, Gav, um, I'm just going to get Dave's thoughts on the performances and the, and the cast. Is yeah. it something that do you echo Alex's thoughts of? Very much, yeah. I pretty much agree with what Alex said. I mean, Shelley Winters, I thought was great, who plays uh, the kid's mom, Willa. Shelley Winters, in her autobiography, actually said this is probably the most thoughtful and reserved performance she's ever given. It's one of the ones she was most proud of. Lillian Gish, I thought was fantastic. She was a silent movie star originally, which is one of the reasons Charles Lawton was so keen to work with her. I mentioned how uh, he wanted to recreate the, a bit of the magic of the silent film. Uh, and she's one of the stars who was able to actually transition from silent film into the talkies. And she was fantastic. You know, she was a just a fantastic performance from her as the kind of the children's savior towards the end of the film. The kids themselves, like I say, you don't really... Kids in older films in particular, the child actors weren't really up to much. These kids are surprisingly good, I thought. You know, they did really good work, especially when they've got to act so scared and terrified of this their stepfather and running away from him and what have you. I thought Peter Graves is the kid's dad, although it's a small role. He, he did a great job. And, of course, you know, one of the greatest movie villains of all time is Reverend Harry Powell, played by Robert Mitchum. This performance was an absolute tour de force you know he's regarded as one of the the best actors of the golden age of hollywood and i'd say this is his standout performance it's absolutely perfect from him you know um for all of his self-deprecating humor and maybe he did turn up pissed i don't know but the guy was fantastic and and clearly this was the role he was born to play it was a role many actors wanted to shy away from just because they were so afraid gary cooper was offered it but he's like no i don't want to play a, a serial killing preacher it's like you crazy it'll tank my career so many actors were afraid to do it robert mitchum wasn't he wanted this role and you, you look at his performance you see what magic he created you can see why okay gav it's your turn to finally just fire that final nail into the coffin yeah robert mitchum as i said before he is quite unnerving in certain parts, but I was very unsatisfied with his performance. I, I don't know whether it's because, I don't know, I built up his performance in, in my head and it could never live up to what I thought it was. Um, maybe it's because I thought that he'd given this sinister tour de force over the years and it would never live up to those expectations. But also because it's just not as menacing as it should be. There are scenes in it, which I've alluded to earlier, where Mitchum tries to grab the kids and misses and then some pots fall on his head. And then he traps his finger in the door and jumps up and howls and sucks his fingers. This is like fucking Home Alone stuff. I'm not joking. I, I did laugh. No, you sorry, are joking. You that are doesn't joking. happen. It doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. At no point does he suck his fingers. Right? He chases the kids up the stairs. They slam the door shut on his hand and he screams and has to pull his hand out of the way. He does not then hop on the ground sucking his fingers. He does not. And listen, I was no expecting point. him to put one foot in an empty mock and then his pants to fall down it's very cartoonish when it happens and it is strikingly different to how the character is portrayed earlier that's my thing obviously I'm, I'm i'm exaggerating here a bit but the setup of the character is different to how it appears later on in the film it just gets less and less menacing so by the end of the film it, the character is almost softened you feel less threatened by him he's, he's less fearful 
I checked to see why this was, and I read that the director, Charles Vaughan, was afraid that the character of Harry Powell was so evil that it could potentially ruin Mitchum's career. So they injected a little bit of humor in there to emphasize the absurdity of the preacher's beliefs and that they made the character a borderline, and this is, this is their quote, a borderline buffoon to make the children's escape and eventual victory over him more believable. And, and I, so I can understand why they did that. I understand why, it, you know, it is a bit haphazard. But I think that it's a massive negative impact on the character then, who started off with so much promise, but completely lost their steam and ended up as a bit of a joke. I, I'll agree that Shelley Winters as Willa Harper is really decent in the film. Everybody else is quite average or pretty shit. I'm sorry, but the two actors, I don't know what film Alex and Dave have been watching here. They're not good. The lads who played John hung up his acting boots just four years later. The girl who played Pearl never appeared in anything ever again. And it's not surprising because they were both awful. I genuinely laughed out loud when John responded to his father getting arrested with, no, don't. Like, that is, like, I'm, I'm sorry, but Joel could have done a better job of expressing emotions there. So... Alex said this is a no perfect film, but let's not forget that Alex said Tomorrow Never Dies was the perfect James Bond film. So <laughs> <laughs> these, these jackasses will have you believe that this film is as good as the hype, but I'm sorry, the first act writes a check that the third Jack, act can't cash. Jackasses? You... <laughs> you know, Joel, when we start get trading personal insults, you know what that means. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Almost makes me miss Ozzy a little bit, to be fair. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I've got a fair amount to chew on there. I believe you've got a quiz for us, Alex. I, I do. On Alex is a killer priest, by any chance? Uh, it's not killer priests, Dave, but it is killed priests. This oh. is a quiz. <laughs> this is a quiz. I started doing now. I started doing a quiz about priests, and I realised that the first three questions were all basically the exact same. How oh. does this priest die? So this is all. This is a pre. This is a quiz, not about killer, but killed priests. So to start us off, how does Father Brennan die in the Omen? Bam. Bam. Oh, Dave. Uh, he gets impaled on the spire falling from the church steeple, doesn't he? He certainly does. Well done, Dave. How does Father Barry die? In on the waterfront. Bam. I can't remember. A heart attack. Not a heart attack, no. <laughs> Did you bam to say you can't remember? Nobody else was panicked. Um Carl Malden, do you remember? Yeah, I remember. I've seen on the waterfront. I loved it. I can't remember how. Uh, bam. Uh, he gets pummeled to death. <laughs> he does not get pummeled to death as good as it would be. Right. He drowns uh, on the waterfront. He doesn't drown on the waterfront. <laughs> well, that would have made a lot more sense, I'm sure. If anyone's still alive from on the waterfront, they'd be kicking themselves now. Chokes it uh, by aliens. Uh, no, no, he is. Uh, he chokes at a hot dog eating competition. <laughs> I'm going to stop you here, guys. I'm going to stop you here. Uh, he is crushed by a crate when it's being moved on purpose, the mafia. Oh. Drop a crate on him as it's being unloaded. How does Father James die in Calvary? Oh, 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 can't remember now. Brendan oh, does, oh, does he get he gets shot, doesn't he? He does. Well done, Gabby. Gets shot twice. Uh, do you remember who shot? Who shoots him? Is it? Uh, spoiler alert. Chris O'Dowd. It is Chris O'Dowd. Well done. How does Father Hennessy die in Constantine? Bam. He um, essentially drinks himself to death, doesn't he? He certainly does. He's tricked into drinking himself to death. Well done. You know your priest death scab. How does Father Karras die in The Exorcist? Bam. Bam. Heart attack. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> Bam, he is uh, possessed by the demon and throws himself out of the bedroom window and falls down the stairs. He certainly does. Well done, Dave. Uh, how does Cardinal Rourke die in Sin City? Bam. Dave. Head head crushed by Marv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wrote. <laughs> I just wrote. He died very, very badly. Yeah. <laughs> which I would have exhibited. In the I hands would've... of Mickey Rourke. No, no, no. With by, by Ricky Rourke, Mickey Rourke's bare hands. Not not a good way to go. Uh, how does the monk Silas die in the Da Vinci Code? Bam, bam. He watched the Da Vinci Code. Died inside. No, it's good. So I'll give you a point. But no, it's not true. Uh, uh, no, he's going. I want to say self-immolation, but no. Again, it would have been better. No, he's just shot to pieces. Oh. Uh, the next one: How does the bishop die in Robin Hood? Bam, bashed. <laughs> <laughs> Two points, Gav. But uh, Dave, do you want to get the actual answer? Uh, he is laden up with gold by Friar Tuck and thrown out of a stained glass window. Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, last one: uh, It's kind of for Dave here. How does Salvatore die in in the name of a rose? Um, Dave, he is burned at the stake. He is, and Dave, for an extra fifty points, can you do an impression of Salvatore? <laughs> very <laughs> ugly, like Salvatore. Ah. Yeah, very good, Dave. Dave wins the quiz. <laughs> Dave wins the quiz. It's my favourite impression ever. <laughs> All I got from that is I really need to watch more films with priests in. Oh, so. not right. priestess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, th- this was certainly an interesting one. I know nothing about this film, so I don't know if it carries a good reputation or not. So I'm kind of freed, if you like, from that uh, burden. I did like a lot of what the defense was saying about it kind of sounds a little bit like a slow burner in terms of the tension building up and the fact that, you know, it's not just about pure horror jump scares and things like that that we that we have in today's films. There's a lot of kind of creeping dread and unsettling elements in this film. And to be completely fair, it sounds very unique as well. The plot certainly sounds like something that I haven't seen before. And it, it, it sounds, like I say, very unique. Not many films today would, would uh, you know, go down that route. I did quite, uh, you know, pay attention to what Gav was saying sometimes, which is a turn up for the books, really, because I know now <laughs> quite regularly, but... It, like some of the scenes sound comedic, but maybe that's because of how old it is and, you know, acting and things like that have moved on since that time. But it'll be interesting to see how I kind of react to that because I don't really watch many old films. And horror, I think, is certainly one of those that ages quite poorly. So I think if a horror film from certainly, you know, like the 50s, holds up well today then it's got to be something special and to be completely honest this does sound like it's going to grab my attention it does sound like a a quite a special film and maybe alex's passion told me more than it should have done because i know that he's um a passionate man sometimes i just need it (laughs) (laughs) but it, it did also sound like gav didn't have too many bad things to say about it though there are a lot of things kind of based along the plot and maybe some of the silly silly acting and things like that but overall kind of nothing too damning kind of came up so yeah i mean it sounds like i'm going to enjoy it so i'm quite looking forward to watching it so hit list that's a happy death that's a happy that's a happy nail scream (laughs) 
Um, okay, so genuine opinions. Uh, well, Alex, I think we know what your opinion is about this. It, yeah, it's an absolute stone cold classic. It, it it really is a fantastic film, and I have to say, watching it, I think older and being a teacher, I did get quite personally involved in this film. Like it does, <laughs> it's taken quite a special little part to place in my heart, especially the character of Rachel Cooper who looks after the children. A lot of what she was saying resonated extremely deeply with me <laughs> so i uh yeah I, I i found it hard to listen to some of what gav was saying but i understand he was saying it for the podcast but i also <laughs> don't want to see him i don't want to see him at all for at least a month <laughs> yeah, i could tell that alex was getting a bit annoyed there and i was like what I was, do you want me to do i'm supposed I know, to be prosecuting I know, I know, this I know, I know, I know. I couldn't, i couldn't help it <laughs> uh, and uh, dave yeah, absolutely the right decision. This is a classic. It is a superb film. It's it's got its flaws, absolutely, as as all films do, but uh the performance from Robert Mitchum is just one of the best performances you're ever gonna see on screen, uh quite frankly. And it, I stand by what I said about Charles Lawton. It's such a shame that uh he was done such a disservice with the distribution of this film and he never directed again. Mm. Uh really is one of the biggest losses in cinema, but at least we've got this. Uh, and like I say, it is uh, preserved in the National Archives now, so for future generations have it as well. It is an absolute classic. Okay, thanks, Steve. And um, Joel, I just want to go on the record here, so if you're still making some notes, can you mark this down? I just want to say, fuck Alex. <laughs> <laughs> fuck Alex. Wow. And then fuck Ozzy as well. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, fuck, right, it reminded me of a few years ago when we did Halloween Horror Month and we decided to pick Marmite films, ones that really sort of indifferent, and then Joel rocked up with fucking Wreck and I had to prosecute that. And I was like, fuck was Joel as well, eh? Yeah, so we fuck not Joel, fucking? Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when Alex picked Night of the Hunter, I was like, you fucking fuck. And, like, and then, <laughs> and then I'm watching it, I was like, oh, what the fuck am I going to say about this? And then all that, that fucking snake also didn't pitch up. <laughs> <laughs> You pick, you pick classics like Night of the Witch and that I picked, garbage. I picked Demon Knight. Yeah, Demon Knight. <laughs> Demon Knight and you picked Pick a Red. good one, Gav. No, everyone you know would you know like what? it if you, you know picked what? a decent film. You pick ones like Suspiria and you know what I mean? Ooh, like, Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> I was annoyed before. But I'm really annoyed. Next week, I'm going to put The Exorcist on trial and Alex do is it. going to prosecute that. Too. <laughs> do it. I'll do it. Right, yeah. yeah it's, it's I'll do my next one side off impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very good film. I, I, I can't add much more to it than uh, what Dave and Alex have already said. Most of what I was saying was complete bullshit. Although I did find the uh, child actors very grating, to be honest. But I mean, there's not many child actors who I don't find grating, but... Artemis Fowl. Uh, Fowl, I think, was the zenith of child acting. <laughs> I don't think you can get any better than Artemis Fowl. Mm. Um, okay, so I, I don't even mind, oh, no, I'm going to bother doing this. Higher or lower than our previous film on trial, The Bodyguard, which scored 34% <laughs> critical yeah, and might. 64% audience. Might be a bit higher. I'm going to go for lower. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm going right. to say this has got to be close to full marks, surely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so critical 95% and audience 90%. Jesus yeah. Uh, so I think I did pretty well to fucking come up with you some did. sort of... Well played, Gav. Yeah. Well Thanks. played. <laughs> and fuck Ozzy again, just to... <laughs> 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 now, uh, next week's film has not been pulled out of the hat at random because it is the turn of Joel to put a Halloween horror film on trial. And Joel has picked The Taking of Deborah Morgan. 
Yeah, no, no, it's not. The take that's the character for that's Dexter's sister from Dexter. The taking of uh, Deborah Logan instead. Uh, so, Joel, why have you picked this film? Um, well, we were just kind of discussing off air then, and you said for kind of possession films, this one kind of stood out as being different, and that's exactly why I picked it. I am notoriously a bit of a wimp with horror films, and this is kind of a different type of horror. It's not like you jump scares, you kind of sat there behind the couch like shaking it's just it's just different you, you just kind of have to watch it and see what you think so tune in next week good stuff thank you very much Joel. so yeah thank you very much everyone for all your arguments and thank you if you've listened to this episode we really do appreciate it if you want to check out more films on trial content go to filmsontrial.co.uk check us out on twitter at film trials and youtube facebook and instagram films on trial so that is it the night of the hunter is surprisingly to well, surprisingly to fucking nobody a hit. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be directly in your ears next week with the taking of Deborah Logan that just Go- sounds like your battery's like slowly running out <laughs> uh, goodbye I'm going to really put the shit up the defence at the game <laughs> Put the shit is up. <laughs> you can tell I deal with civil law, not not criminal. <laughs>